there are shysters at every level of everything. So we would never say to somebody, oh, if you could get your hands on one of these guys who's got a, he's got a letter salad after his name, oh, you got a winner on your hands there. Uh, we know too many horror stories of people who were taken, and I mean taken, they're multi-generational wealth completely destroyed by very smart people. What's up, boss? This is Abraham's wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. We don't often like to give away our secrets here at the, the Abraham's Wallet podcast. Oh, really? I don't think so. You know, the people are going to hear this. They're going to go, it's a great new week. It's a Wednesday morning. I'm excited about the Abraham's Wallet podcast. They might I think, always imagine our boy going out for a six mile run in the snow and he puts in the ear things and he pulls, pulls down his woolly hat for his spring run in the snow and he's getting ready for some Abe's Wallet. I think of my boy and he Mike. Wants to hear that. He's like, "Woo!" I think of my boy Mike with like his super heavy down coat and his furry hat, and he's like, "I'm going to operate some heavy machinery today." I also I think to- of Mike because we yeah. time the release every Wednesday morning to be nice and early so that Mike can hear it when he wakes up. We're about to be in segment two of a back-to-back recording session, so that's why if you're a YouTuber, <laughs> you you might be seeing here we are again in the same clothes. Yeah. It's- because we're still in the same clothes, but yeah, get over it. In between episodes, I had just had to run downstairs and I had to wrap gently wrap a pork butt that is smoking Ooh. in preparation of the Shabbat tonight. Oh, what a wonderful task! I've got uh, 14 pounds of pork down there smoking away since seven o'clock this morning. How did it smell? Did you want to lick it? I, I got the new Meat Church honey bacon rub. I, I have I three Meat it. Church rubs right now. Coated it in that, and then about halfway through the smoke, rubbed it in brown sugar and butter. It's not going to suck, that's for sure. You're reminding me of one of my, he probably is my favorite Twitter follow, is Papaw Jim. Papaw Jim's an awesome follow. That's the guy that you wish you had around the corner. I mean, I, I would take him as a mentor in barbecue, in Christ following. The dude is finishing up his faithful, like, 50-year career in manufacturing or something that guy's just cool the next time you come up this way to uh, visit clients if we could phone if we could dummy up an excuse to go to southern illinois where he lives he just lives no he lives southern illinois that's right i think it's like north of uh, indianapolis i I have a hundred percent confidence if we arranged to meet him he would smoke us some some barbecue i'm totally confident of that we need to just have him on an episode. Maybe, I mean, it's, it would go oh one of gosh. two ways. Either Papa Jim would be full of wisdom and awesome, or we'd get there and we'd have to put a pre, pre-roll in that said, now, we thought Papa Jim was this uh, wise patriarch. <laughs> it turns out he's kind of a kook. Uh, but we're going to air no, it anyways. I, it's so obvious he's just a regular guy. What he loves to do is just take pictures of the, the barbecue he's getting ready to smoke. And then he just shows the world, here it is. It's all ready to go. And then he takes another picture 
well, it came out pretty good. And I'm like, this is what I came to Twitter for. He's a good follow. And if you like the barbecue and the Christ loving, another great one is my man, Seal Dazeel. Um, oh, who, I think I used to follow Seal Dazeel. I don't think I do anymore. He's He's got a, some awesome dreadlocks and he's raising a family down in Florida. And he's very dedicated to the smoker as well. Fabulous. Um, sh- should we just jump right in? Because I've got some stuff I want to ask you today. Let's do it. Here's the thing. This isn't, you know, we, we recently did an episode on on financial news. I know that we're in the middle of, uh, th- this is one of those topics that doesn't feel particularly urgent, but it's something that we haven't hit right on the nose. And I think I'm very interested in people knowing their way around this subject. Something that I think people ask themselves about their financial lives, but they don't have anybody to ask it to because the person that would have enough information to answer the question knowledgeably is a person that has too much to gain from the way they answer the question. And so the question is, is hiring a financial planner a waste of money? And if you ask that to people that don't have a financial planner, they go, oh, yeah, boy, you got to be a smart guy and don't don't be wasting your money on one of those numbskulls because I can do whatever they can do. And there's all these, uh, you know, there's robo advisors and stuff that you can that you can use for financial planners. And well, the, for investment managers. What did I say? I'm just clarifying. Maybe we'll get into that in this episode. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. You can do investments through them. And I think a lot of people think a financial planner is somebody that I give money to so that he can put it in the stock market in a mutual fund. And why would I hire somebody just to hand them money and let them put it into the stock market when I can put it in the stock market myself? And I can decide how much money I think I can risk in the stock market, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to address that because if we care about people's financial lives, that's a huge category of do I hire somebody to manage this stuff for me? It's kind of like saying on my team, we've talked about having a board of directors before. On my team, the people that are part of my financial universe, do I hire a tax person? When I go to an estate planner, is that a part of a long-term strategy or is that a one-time visit or do I, I've asked this question before and gotten good answers, is that even something that I need? we're not super rich. Do I need to do any sort of estate planning, et cetera? So I I just like to address the world of financial planners. So would you just tell us right off the top, what is your definition of what is a financial planner? There's a lot of people that use the title financial planner, financial advisor, wealth advisor, investment manager. I'm going to get to that. Broker, I guess that's less and less common, but Uh, There's a lot of people who would maybe fill that role, even CPAs who will say, hey, I can sell you investments too. Um, Right. So real financial planning, there's a guy named Michael Kitsis who you love to talk about as the biggest nerd you've ever seen in your life. But he's he's kind of the the godfather of... Content for financial planners. He he does a weekly podcast, and honestly, a lot of what I learned about where the future of the industry is came from this guy, and his his gist was, you know, if you have an icky feeling when I say financial planner, it's probably because they deserve it. The <laughs> industry it, as a whole has actually been pretty icky for a long time, but there's a new wave, I guess I would say, of financial planners who are not salespeople primarily. Their job is to actually sit down with you and create a holistic plan. And these could be people like me who maybe think that the the core of the, the, the idea of holistic is 
who you are spiritually and what you're created uniquely to do and be and all that. But you can also have somebody that would say, I don't believe any of your God stuff, but I do think in order to do good planning for you, I need to not just take your money and put it into a couple mutual funds. I need to think about your tax picture, your estate planning, your insurance picture, all of that. And somebody who can look at all of these things, who's not trying to sell you anything, who doesn't get paid differently based on what you decide to invest in or not, or what insurance you decide to buy or not. And that would be somebody who I would classify as a real financial planner. So their primary role in your life is to help you plan and not to sell you things. Okay, that's 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 a great distinction. A financial planner as we would define it would be somebody who gives you over strategic oversight and consults with you based on your financial world and your financial goals and gives you an a, an overview of the whole landscape. It seems like we should be doing this and this. What are you paying for car insurance again? Okay, let me see your mortgage. Okay, that seems like a good deal right there. Let me t- let's talk about your earning. What, what, how much you got going there and and puts all the puzzle pieces in place so that you have a designed course of action. And then some parts of it, not all parts of it, that person will also go, I will take care of this for you. I can do that. I don't do that. You're going to have to, well, I can recommend somebody. I don't do that, but I do this and this and and moves you down the path of executing on a all-encompassing plan. Yes, and there's there's different flavors, right? Some people will do none of it for you, but they'll still do all the planning and hand-holding. Other people are like super integrated and they've got lawyers that are going to do your state plan and accountants that are going to do your tax. Whether they do a lot of it or just coach you through it, that's going to vary from from person to person, but okay. Uh, the the planning part is critical and honestly, that's where the value is. So people who would just take your money and stick it in investments, they have extremely limited values what I'm hearing from you. Now, you mentioned about eight euphemisms for this role. And I have heard of something called a, now get, get a load of this term, certified financial planner. Is that just another one of these throwaway terms? Or what does that even mean? So that's a designation that financial planners can go to school for. You have to actually do some college level courses. And then you have to take a test. And there, honestly, Steve, there's a lot of designations out there in the world. I don't know if I should say this on the podcast because I might really offend some people. But tell um, us your opinion. My opinion, having gone through the certified financial planner designation, like I've done that and I pay a fair bit of money, do continuing education every year to keep keep that designation. You are a certified financial planner? Yes. So I'm speaking as a biased. Well, biased also means informed. So go ahead. There's a lot of other designations, chartered financial planner, certified life insurance counselor. It's interesting. They all start with C, almost all of them. Chartered financial analyst, that's one. Certified public accountant, CPA. CPA is meaningful. That's a somebody who has gone through a whole lot of accounting certification training. Right. They really know their accounting. They can do audit work. They can do tax work, all sorts of things. They've done a lot of hours of actual work to get it as well. Chartered financial analyst. That's a, a designation that usually people get who are going to be investment analysts. So I did a lot of the work to, to go through that when I thought that was going to be my my long-term career deal. You actually have to do it over many years in multiple stages to get the the CFA designation, but that is a super legit designation. CFP, Certified Financial Planner, 
Same deal. You have to have a whole bunch of hours of work experience. You also have to go through courses and pass a test. And it is kind of the gold standard for financial planners. I will say I've run across many CFPs who will sell you a horrible whole life insurance policy because they get a fat commission check off of it. So it's not like your homework is not done when you see the letters CFP. But it does mean they at least know all those different areas we talked about and have passed a very difficult test that covered estate planning, insurance planning, tax planning, investments, retirement, etc. Right. So that's kind of like getting a graduate degree in financial planning and you can't dummy or sweet talk your way through that. Yeah. So I have an MBA, a master's of business administration. And I will tell you, I got that because I was working for a company that paid for it at the time. Not hard not something I'm proud of at all. I'm like, yeah, I got this. I got this because I thought if I ever just have to get a job, it will be a good insurance that somebody will probably maybe put me a little bit higher in the queue when they're yeah. deciding who to interview. If anything, when I went through that, I was looking around at my classmates thinking, they're going to get a, one of these degrees too. And that makes me not sure if I want it. Yeah. With the CFP... I had those types of people in my class and they all failed the test and did not get the designation because it was okay. really thinking hard. And I'm okay. actually really proud of that designation. It was hard to get. And then, like I said, there's all these other designations out there and I'm not going to name them. But when I see a lot of those, I go, that's a person who took the maximum attempts at the CFP, didn't pass and they cut you off. You don't get any more tries. And usually what people do at that point in their careers, they go, I'll go get one of these other designations. Uh -huh. um, again, CFP, uh, CFA and CPA, those are the three kind of gold standards in accounting financial analysis, and financial planning. Most other things are either really specialized or they are, I would say, kind of second to fifth tier. Like, I just need some letters after my name so my business card looks balanced. So I, I hear that these people are at least, they know their way around these, uh, these issues and around products and securities and what you can and can't do, et cetera. Uh, you've touched on this a little bit, but if they're all smart people, are they all really good people if they have those letters after their name? The CFP board is fine with a whole bunch of models of getting paid for your services. And back in the day, pretty much anyone who wanted to help people plan out their financial lives and deal with money, they were selling products. And that was the only way to get paid is, you, you know, you say, I think these are good mutual funds and the mutual funds pay me when I invest you in them. And that's how I get paid. So I don't think those were bad people who were doing doing it that way. And there's still right. people who do it that way. And I bet there's a lot of them who are wonderful people. I'm not disparaging the character of somebody based on their fee model. I am going to say that I think personally, if I knew that a doctor got paid completely different amounts of money, if they prescribed the best medicine for my ailment, or one that was decent and probably would be fine and I would be okay. And it was like the difference in $50,000 in their pocket or zero. Whether or not they did prescribe me the right one, I would be always wondering, are, are they prescribing me the right medicine because it's the best one for me or because they get the most money? For a fact, that kind of thing happens, but that's another discussion about the medical community. So my question is, are all that's these good people? Now. Well, I, I don't have any comment on their their character. I'm just saying let's take the character piece out of the equation and say there are humans and 
So there's going to be good and bad mixed in, but they're okay. They're that's the answer. Right? I'll answer it myself. No, they're not all good people. It doesn't matter how many letters they have after their name. They're not all good people. So you don't, you wouldn't just trust someone just because they have some letters after their name. I would say we want we want the people that we work with to have a modicum of understanding and expertise in this world. However, there are shysters at every level of everything. So we would never say to somebody, oh, if you could get your hands on one of these guys who's got a, uh, he's got a letter salad after his name, oh, you got a winner on your hands there. Uh, we know too many horror stories of people who were taken, and I mean taken, their multi-generational wealth completely destroyed by very smart people. If you really want to, to entertain yourself with one of those stories, go to abrahamswallet.com to the blog, read an old article. I think, Stephen, you can put it in the show notes, but uh, by our friend Mark Douglas, which I think he might have written under a pseudonym back then, titled When I Was a Millionaire. That's right. That's a great little story. And he when tells the story of a multi-million dollar count that was stolen by a, I think, a deacon at the church. <laughs> who was a Correct. financial planner and absconded from the country and goodbye money, never, never to be seen again. So that stuff happens. It's not just theoretical what you're describing. My next question is, why are financial planners in business? To make money. For the same reason anybody's in business. Uh, that's helpful to hear. They're in business to make money. So does that mean, and I'm just thinking like the common guy on the street, he knows a friend who hands out uh, business cards at church, sees at the dentist's office and the financial planner's office, and he shrugs his shoulders and goes, those guys are just in, for, in it to make money. Is it dumb because they're going to hoodwink you? Are they all shysters? No, I don't think so at all. I think that I'm going to make two points. Number one, not everybody needs a financial planner. This should not be construed as a commercial for financial planners. No, it's um, informational. In fact, I'm going to, at some point, if you give me a crack in the wall, I'm going to tell about some people who distinctly don't need a financial planner and got taken for a ride when they thought they did. But some people do need a financial planner. Some people need them for the, the planning help. And they go, well, you can manage my money, I guess, since you, I'm paying you to do all this planning. Other people need them for everything. They're like, man, you could give me the best laid plans and then hand me the instructions and I either have no interest or I am too busy or I don't have the skills to implement those plans. And so it's not dumb to say, you do the service that you're offering for money that you're really good at, and I will focus my efforts on the things that I am really good at, which may not include money, or I might be capable of it, but I just choose to not do that with my time. I don't know, you and I both employ all sorts of people to do things that we could do and choose not to. So I think making that deal is totally reasonable for a lot of people. It's not only wise, to employ someone to mow your lawn if you don't have the time or physical capacity to mow your lawn. But when it comes to, say, landscape design, and it has to do with the water level under your house, it has to do with the pH balance of your soil, it has to do with what part of the country you're in and what plants will do well. Did you talk to my wife? Did she say that no. you need to talk to me on the, on the air live about no, how I screwed up trying our to draw a metaphor. Trying to draw a metaphor. You can tell us about your life in a second. So 
when it's lawn mowing, okay, that is that that's yeoman's work. If you have time to do it, you can do it. But if we're talking about landscape design and what should go where and what the sorry, the root system of this thing will only support these kinds of bushes and flowers underneath it. Guess what, folks? You don't know that information. I don't know that information. I need someone to do that work because their ability to understand the finer points is much higher than my own. There comes a point where you're not talking about the college kid who can mow your lawn. You're talking about somebody like my good friend, Phil Reavy, who actually has a degree in these things and go like, I can tell you which plants are going to do well. And just the fact that you saw one online that you think is going to be pretty in your yard doesn't mean it will succeed there. It's not stupid to pay a professional to do things better for you than you could do yourself. So that's a pretty simple point. And I, I want to make one. Okay. Okay, do you want to tell us about your landscape design before I make my little another point? Oh, I don't necessarily have to. I'll just say to agree with what you're saying. I have taken it upon myself to re-landscape the yard at my house twice in my life. <laughs> and both times, one time ended up with just an increasingly large portion of my yard being covered in those giant thick wood chips and it just looked like we had a sea of dog dew in the backyard it was awful <laughs> and the other time resulted in the collapse of a retaining wall so my Horrible. wife just says now this is one thing that you are definitively worse not only than a professional at <laughs> but worse than the average person like <laughs> off the street you are where you're in the the bottom 50 percentile of <laughs> landscapers. So that's kind of a running joke in the parrot house. Okay. Not, not only do you not bring anything to the table, you make things worse when you get involved. That's right. Okay. So um, you l let me just ask on that point. You started this big project uh, in your front yard. Is that finished or does that finish after it warms up? I have called that company at least twice in the past three days to say, when are we when are we planting all the plants? Because my water, okay. it's it's raining and it's kind of spring here. And my soil of my front yard is kind of running out into the streets because we have no plants. Um, okay. But soon, but not yet is the answer. All right. So I'd like to make one more little businessy comparison besides my uh, landscape design. In my wife's business, my wife started as a, a wedding planner and she's, she's since expanded into uh, doing uh, corporate stuff. It was very hard in the early days for these, God bless them, these sweet brides who had, they had this much money to put towards their weddings. If, if you'd like to know how much money to put towards your weddings, you could watch an episode, a recent episode that we did about saving up for weddings. And, you know, these sweet girls are very concerned and they're very protective of their wedding budget because they want to make the most of it and they want it to be wonderful. And so it would seem like a waste for them to hand, I don't know what my wife charged in the early days, $2,000 to a wedding planner when I've only got $15,000 in my budget to hand it to this person. What is she going to do? Put flowers up on a pedestal? We could have put flowers on a pedestal. This was so striking to me. I would nearly stop them and knock them over and tell them, listen, you can't get the deals with photographers, linen people, furniture rentals, tent rentals, videographers, talent, if you're going to have, you know, live music or something, you can't get the deals as a normal person that my wife can get because this is the business that she does. So all of the vendors want to work with her. 
So cake makers would say, well, I would charge $500 for that cake. But for you, Dora, I'll charge you $300 for that cake. Those things were real. And so they happened in all of these categories around a wedding. And I wanted to grab these girls and shake them by the shoulders which is not a good way to get new clients. But I wanted to say to them, it will benefit you financially if you will hire this girl. You will end up saving money if you'll just let her run everything besides the fact that it'll be more beautiful. I think that is a comparable uh, example to a good financial planner who is looking at the whole landscape of your life and going, we want to make wise decisions all the way from your car insurance to your education planning for your newborn, et cetera. For somebody to give you thoughtful oversight into all these arenas, to me, it seems obvious that if there's any complexity, if there's maturity, if, if I can use that word, to your financial plan, then hiring a professional to give you the landscape design, if you will, of your finances makes all the sense in the world to me. Have any reaction to that? When I talk to folks who are considering this, it's not so much could I envision needing this is the appropriate time. How much do I spend? Because, you know, we own a financial planning business and we also do this podcast. And a lot of people listening to this podcast will give me a call from time to time and say, Hey, is now the time for me to start? I love the podcast. I'm a big fan. And frankly, I'll pay whatever the rate is to have one on one interactions with Stephen Manuel. But, but in all seriousness, I do get a lot Thanks, of people. Mom. We appreciate your business, mom. Yeah. I get a lot of people who are wondering, is now the right time? And they might actually be killing it. Like they're on the Abrahamic track. They're making $75,000 a year and have a newborn. And maybe they're following our critical skills of finance path that we are oh, yeah. in, in the process of laying out. When I listen to the overall picture, I go, actually, if you're going to spend a few thousand dollars on financial planning and then pay on an ongoing basis to have somebody help you, there's better things to do with your money at this stage. And here is where it would help. Just because everything you said is true and valuable doesn't mean at all that everybody should be rushing to the to the door to hire a financial planner right now. Totally. And we are I, not I, saying I, that. I know this is true of you. I'm sure it's true of other good guys as well. One of the things that has made me incredibly loyal to my mechanic that I use, I just spent a whole bunch of money recently on my uh, uh, 97 Land Cruiser with this guy. And one of the reasons that I trust him to, to do that is because there have been several times when I have heard a clanging sound under my hood and I dropped my head and kicked a rock and drug my vehicle in there and said, I think it's bad. I think it sounds like $1,500 under that hood. And he calls me the next day and goes like, it was a $20 part. Come get your car. It's no big deal. He has before called me and said, it isn't at all what you think it was. I replaced something. There's no charge. It's fine. Just have a nice day. And those moments, if you're an auto mechanic, I recommend that you look for those moments because they... So build his credibility to me that I totally trust him when he goes, this is a big one, Stephen. It's going to take some money to, well, you're my guy. I trust you. And so to have somebody like you who would say that this isn't a good time for you. I don't recommend that you use me at this time. It speaks very well of somebody's integrity if they're willing to say that. This is kind of a, a rabbit trail, but do you have any rules of thumb for somebody, whether they're they're ready or not? It really depends because I've worked with people 
almost at every stage, including people who break these rules. But I was like, actually, in your unique situation, this is going to be worth the money and time. But in general, I think it's good to say if there's just some dead clear financial goals where, you know, you could maybe take the Abraham's Wallet uh, annual summit and use that to say, Mm. what are our what are our big goals? What are we going after as a family? And you come out of that feeling like, okay, we've got some near term and some more longer term stuff that we just know we're after. However, when we look at our money, we go, we have $8,000 in credit card debt. And we're maybe we're, we're chipping away at it. We're paying it down slowly, but it's still there. And it's not something that we can just snap our fingers and pay off. That would be a case where I'd go pay that off first because it's dead obvious that that's the right. next thing on your list. We both worked for campus ministries for the last 10 years and we're currently trying to find jobs, but we make a combined $60,000 a year as a family and we're transitioning into a for-profit business world. I would say get really good at budgeting, you know, find some mentors who can help you with that, but don't take what's a huge percentage of your, your earnings for the year and use it to get somebody to tell you a bunch of stuff that you probably won't be able to even start implementing yes. until you're in the next phase. Yes, I think that's the highest level way to understand if it's a good time is if you ask yourself, if I had a list of all the things that I need to do over time, would some of them probably be actionable right now that I don't know about? If you're in a position where, hey, we're just trying to to amp up the earnings side of the equation and get to a spot where there is a little bit of extra money, then it's less likely. What I don't like is writing financial plans for people that are all theoretical. Well, step one is you're going to increase earnings. And step two, right. that's happen in six years, is that then you'll be able to start contributing to a Roth IRA and then and then and then. And the truth is everything changes. You might get there way faster than you think. You might take longer than you think to get there. It's better to to kind of launch into that long-term planning mode when you've got the, the near-term uh, stuff feels stable. And a good rule of thumb is if you're going, you know, We've got some extra money left over when we cover the basics. Like we're doing some giving, we're doing some saving, we're budgeting well, we know where all our money's going. Our debt situation is good, meaning like we're not going deeper and deeper into debt just to to make things work. Then it can be really good. Now, the exceptions are all sorts. But for example, I've worked with people who are in medical school and they're going, I'm taking on $350,000 worth of debt. I know I'm going to have a high income, but I would really like to make the smartest choices now because I know that could save me $100,000 over the next five years. That's a situation where maybe you're not in a spot where you've got extra every month, but it can make a lot of sense to bring in outside eyes and help you make the right choices that could save you five, 10 times what you spend on advice. But you've told me you don't want to work with future doctors. Is that right? I only work with current doctors uh, in <laughs> in the the family setting. I have enough doctors okay. in my household. I was just kidding. You mentioned uh, something that made me think of a question around what people pay for financial planners that to us seems like highway robbery. Would you tell us how people can find out if they're using an investment advisor or they're using a financial planner. A lot of times we know that those, I used to be a mortgage broker 
as a mortgage broker, there are lines that in somebody's uh, financial, um, the, the statement for your mortgage, there are magical lines and magical phrases that mean that money's going towards the uh, mortgage broker. You can also, dirty, dirty business here, raise someone's mortgage rate higher than the bank is charging and take a percentage of that mortgage for yourself if you're the mortgage broker. Bank says, we're charging 7% for this loan. You can tell your client, oh, we got a really good price for you. The bank is charging 7.375% for this loan. Guess who gets to keep that 0.375? The mortgage broker. So there are these dirty places where you can hide fees and line your own pockets. That's also true in the financial planner world. So how can people find out exactly what they are being charged for investments and financial planning? Yeah. And I'm going to do you one better, Stephen. I'm going to say... You. This isn't just applicable if you have a financial planner. If you have any investments, meaning you have a 401k, you bought some investment through your buddy when he graduated from college and went to work for Northwestern Mutual or whatever, you, you inherited something from someone. If you have any investments, the first thing I would do is figure out what are the fees on the investments? Because this is the thing that most people miss. Go find your statement. Uh, look at the tickers on the investments. Now, if they're individual stocks, like you own some shares of Coca-Cola or Home Depot, there's not an underlying fee because that's an individual company. If they're mutual funds or exchange-traded funds, which would be companies that exist to buy stock in other companies and pool them together, they can be... There's all sorts of mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, but it's basically a way to diversify and own a whole bunch of stocks with one asset that you purchase. Those have fees included in them. You should find out what those fees are. They range from like two basis points, meaning 0.02% annually to a whole, whole lot, 4% annually for some really weird, actively managed mutual funds that would That's be outrageous. out there. Would you say that um, this is part of oversight and managing your flocks to know what you're being charged? Yeah, this is a good thing that we probably should have added in there. But you can find those out if you go to Yahoo Finance. So if you type in finance.yahoo.com, just find that ticker symbol. VOO is a very popular exchange traded fund that just tracks the S&P 500. It's the Vanguard S&P 500. You'll see a line when you get the summary that says expense ratio. And in this case, it's 0.03%. That is very, very low. I like it, VOO. If I wanted to look at something like Ron Barron, he's a famous asset manager that runs mutual funds. The Barron Partners Fund. I would look at my statement. It would say Barron Partners Fund, BPTRX. I would type okay, that in. Well, I'll do it and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. BPTRX, Barron Partners Fund. I open now, that up on finance.yahoo.com. I go down and I see... the expense ratio? Oh, it's not 0.03 or whatever that VOO was. It's 1.36. Here, you are 1.36% of your money goes into Ron Barron's pocket every year. Oh, I don't year. care for that. I, I don't and care for... Give him that. What he's trying to convince you of is that this... I'm going to be so good at investing that I'm going to beat the market by 1.36% or more every year. Now... He doesn't. And that's the, the tricky course, thing. Nobody will. 
at our firm, we believe really, really firmly in minimizing those fees. When it comes to underlying fees, you might have a financial planner, you might not. Go look up what the expense ratio is on the funds. I was reviewing these for somebody who just had kind of that same story. They had bought some investments through a friend of a friend back in the day, asked me to take a look. And I saw another line item, which was a front end load. Have you ever heard of loaded mutual funds? I have. So when I looked this up, this person, they were paying a financial planner a percentage of their money to manage it. Now we're going to talk about that next. Then we looked at the the mutual funds that they were holding and they had about a one and a half percent expense ratio. So that's real high. And then I saw there was a 5% front end load, meaning when they bought... I can't believe it. When they bought these, it means in year one, seven and a half percent of their money left their account for fees. I'm so offended and shocked. And how horrible is that? So the front end load is the the fee just to buy it. And frankly, I'm sure there's exceptions for every rule. I don't recommend any mutual funds with any front end load ever. Just be aware that 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 front load that goes to the financial person who recommends the the fund to you or to the managers of the fund, depending on how it's structured. So just be aware and check before you okay buying anything or before you buy it yourself if you're doing doing self management. That's front end load. That's underlying fees like expense ratio on funds, and then there's one more place that you need to be aware. And the gross thing about that expense ratio money to me is that it's not just handing over cash to somebody. It's actually destroying your returns, your gains on your money. Whatever your number one, it's making the mountain smaller of growth. And it's also killing the future mountain that you're building off of. So, so you're killing your ability to compound over time. And I will say, though, there's two sides to this coin. One is we want to avoid these really high, high fees wherever they may be hiding. The second one is you can also only focus on fees and lose the forest for the trees a little of bit course. and say, of course. I'm just going to invest in the VOOs of the world and I'm going to completely ignore things. Like we recommend some investments that have maybe up to 35 or 40 basis points. So 0.35 or 0.4% of fees. But That's we do the high it, end, everybody. That's the high end. We do it when there's a very specific reason for including that investment in a portfolio and it meets a need. You know, there's there's funds out there that that we say for this person and the the thing we're trying to achieve, there isn't just a three basis point solution to do what we need to do. So we're fine with paying some fees and that's fine. I'm going to say the same thing about how much you pay an advisor because there's a wide breadth of how much somebody who's willing to manage your money is going to charge. And usually they're charging you whatever their fee is on top of all these other fees we've just described. There's some people who the way they charge for their services is a flat fee. And they'll say it's this much every year, no matter if I manage $0 for you or $10 million. That can be a really good model. There's certain states that allow advisors to do it that way and others that don't. But what I have found is that it tends to be a better model when you have a lot, a lot of money. So there's no one that's that's having $50 million managed who's paying 1% fees per year. If they are, they're crazy. A lot of people who 
maybe don't have a lot of assets, but have a very complex financial situation, and this might sound crazy, it's actually really valuable to them. And they'll pay somebody $10,000 a year for flat fee advice and planning to just be a consultant. So usually that flat fee model, it starts kind of in that five to 10,000 plus a year range is what people end up paying for flat fee advice. Okay. Um, The next model is the one we already talked about where it's all commissions. So they don't charge you a percentage, but every time they recommend something to you, they get paid when you invest in it. That's another model. But the one that I would say is probably most common amongst people that are like CFPs and doing financial planning the way I kind of described as, you know, quote, real financial planning. The most common model is still probably to use an assets under management model where they charge you a percent of the money that they're managing on your behalf. When somebody comes to me and is interviewing me as a potential planner for them, I always tell them, all you want is just the money management and you don't want the planning part, you'll be better off to go find a computer program to manage your money. Right. I do think that it's still a fairly good proxy to tie how much fees that you're getting as a financial planner to the amount of money you're managing for someone because it tends, complexity tends to increase. And you tend to say, well, when you had $200,000, you had this much need, but now you've got $750,000 and we're starting to get into a new bucket. And when you have 2 million, we're going to do a whole lot of different things than we were doing. So it does tend to increase. It's not perfect one-to-one there's a fee that gets charged based on the amount of assets that people are managing. The way that I do it is that fee decreases as the assets go up uh, because it's not twice as hard to manage $5 million as it is to manage $2.5 million. Right. So the fees decrease as the balance goes up. I don't want to to say that it's necessarily wise to, to look at this as you want to absolutely minimize those fees. Vanguard just had a program that a lot of financial planners were worried about where they would have a real CFP person that would be your financial planner and they would charge, I think it was 40 basis points. So 0.4% which is really, really low. I'd say the industry standard is 1% that people charge. And they would charge 0.4%. They just shuttered it. They're closing it all down because they said, we can't provide good service Mm -hmm. to people for that cost. We end up basically just doing a once a year check-in on their investments. And all we're doing is kind of what I suggested, which is like the same thing a computer program would do. We can't do real financial planning. Economically, it didn't work. Even the big super resourced companies like the vanguards and fidelities of the world have not figured out a way to do this at really, really cheap cost. And my my argument, because I see people doing this for really low cost, is that if you see too low of a cost, you should be suspicious. You should also be suspicious, although you shouldn't necessarily say it's 100% wrong if you see really high cost. There's a guy that lives down the street from me that charges 1.5% as his management fee. And initially, I thought, that's crazy. That's really, really high. I would generally recommend that somebody not work with him. And then I learned a little bit about his practice. And this guy only works with dentists. And he knows everything there is to know about running dental practices, every tax trick in the book. And he probably saves his clients so much more money than they spend on him that you'd be crazy to be a dentist and not working with this guy. I've had dentists call me and I've said, frankly, here's who you need to talk to. Um, Cool. not, Not me. Just because somebody's charging above average doesn't necessarily mean that they are not great. My real admonition to people is not to tell you, here's how much you should spend. It's to know how much you're spending. 
if you ever are talking to either somebody you're working with, you you see the fees and you want, maybe you ask questions to the person you're working with, how much am I actually paying you? And there's any inkling of, well, well, well why are you asking that? Or any, that's a big red flag. You know, personally, I I find it very important to slide a piece of paper across the desk, you know, often metaphorically, because we do everything digitally these days, but and say, here's how much you paid me this quarter yeah. this year. Did you get that much value? If not, yes, maybe we shouldn't be working together. That to me is a good way to think about this is just know the condition of your flocks, know how much you're spending to have help in this area. It's the same if you're if you're using a 401k plan and you're not working with a planner. Know what the fees on the funds are. Know how much the fees on the plan are because there's often additional fees on a 401k plan. And if it looks terrible, tell your boss, this looks terrible. What, yes. What's the deal here? I'm not trying to create litigious listeners here, but if you have a 401k plan that's really bad, your employer is on the hook uh, and you can sue them for that. Not to say that you would. You have rights that they they would be very nervous if you started saying, I don't like this one little bit. I'm going to put some pressure on you to fix it. They very well might listen to you. Wherever it is that you're keeping assets and money and whoever it is that you're hiring to help you with that, just know what you're paying. Have that honest, open conversation with them and go, do you think I'm getting this much value? Hopefully the answer is yes. And you go, great, I've got good people on my team. And if the answer is no, then make a change. That's that's pretty much all we're saying. I always used to love it when um, potential clients uh, at the uh, when I was selling mortgages were, were saying, uh, "Hey, I'm shopping you. I want you to know that I have, we haven't signed on the dotted line, but we want to know what how you're making money on us." I always thought I'm about to sign somebody up because I love it when they ask that question because I know that I'm giving them the honest rate directly from the bank. There's my fees right there. And I would say, I welcome you to go shop that to all the shysters out there. I loved it. And I thought, well, I'm getting this business for sure. People who don't mind being transparent, that's a really good start. That's a really good starter uh, spot for somebody that you're trusting to uh, lead your finances. What I'm hearing is there is a baseline of knowledge that you should be looking for if you're if you're going down the path of our, we're at a stage in our Abrahamic steps to greatness that we think uh, it's time for us to get a professional to look us over and give some thoughts. They're, they're not all necessarily wonderful people, but we can ask questions to, to figure out what the benefit would be, whatever uh, funds they're recommending for investment. We could go see exactly what they're making on, on those funds and exactly what's being charged up front. And then we can make a more reasonable decision. And I definitely hear that if you're going to get somebody who you who you're going to use as a financial advisor you really want them to be able to look over the totality of your financial picture including your long-term goals and go let's make this work in all of these specific areas because as as we know not everyone does that and somebody who is given us oversight. We want them to take on board everything that we're trying to do with our lives. So that's what I hear. And I think it's a very wise counsel. That's my hope for you if you're listening is that you would, if you only took one thing away, it's not about should I go get a financial planner or anything like that. It's honestly, I could get really comfortable with knowing how much I'm spending on my investment portfolio. Like what am I paying in fees? Almost nobody knows that. Nobody knows the answer to that. And it's true. To quote the great Stephen Manuel, it really burns my beans when I talk to somebody and they tell yeah, me... that'll burn your beans all right. They tell me, 
oh, I love my financial planner because he's free. And I say, what are you smoking? It's not free. Nothing's free. Uh, that's right. And that's where we usually find the sharks lurking in the shallow waters. So yeah, that's uh, right. if that's the only thing you take from this, then I just say, take it, use it and know the condition of your flocks. That's all. Yeah. So we want to uh, avoid the, the bad guys. And we also want to take on board the fact that we can actually save money is the wrong word, but we can, we can actually be in a much better long-term financial position if we hire an expert who actually will serve us with all of his expertise to run us down a great road of growth. So if you do have questions about this, if this triggered something in you that you went, I would like to talk to these guys some more. Maybe you, yes, you listener are the one that we will say, hey, buddy, it's not quite time to hire a financial planner. Or maybe we'll say, this is a great time to hire a financial planner. And here's a list of 10 people who we really trust. Spoiler alert, we might be on that list because yeah. that is what we do. But you can also rest assured knowing that we aren't the only ones. And like I just described with my dentist example, there's times often when we are not the right ones. So we're happy to kind of connect you with that. You can learn more about what we do on the financial planning front if you want to at Outpost Advisors. We started that firm because we think every family is a kingdom outpost that is needs to be defining their own unique vision in the kingdom and then funding it with whatever resources the Lord has entrusted them with. If that's who you are, feel free to check that out and you can click a link on there and book time. Once in a while, I get a listener who just books some time because they want to hang out for a minute. And yeah, I don't know, maybe at some point we'll get so busy that I have to shut that down. But for now, it's never, it doesn't ever ruin my day to talk to a, an eighth Walt listener for 30 of course. minutes. Would love to help you guys if this is important in your life. If you're just going, hey, can you tell me, do I have a problem here? Are my fees yeah. out of line? Whatever. You can always email us. We don't give we don't give personalized financial advice to people who we're not working with on a client basis, but we do find ourselves happy to talk to you about this. We even have a whole community of Abraham's Wallet listeners that talk to each other about this kind of stuff. And if you're interested in being a part of that, you can go to abrahamswallet.com slash donate and you can talk to us and other Abrahamic family leaders as uh, as we kind of consider these things together. Sweet. Okay. Thanks a lot, everybody. That's it for today. We'll see you next week.